So thank you all for singing along with us this evening. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 9. We've been a few weeks uh, off from our normal Acts Bible study. We took a week off for uh, studying an Easter message. We did, of course, we didn't have service last Sunday night on Easter Sunday. So it's been almost a month since we've been in Acts 9. We're going to um, recover some scriptures that we kind of breeze past and talking about Saul's conversion. Uh, we'll have a good time in God's Word this evening, I think. Um, but if you were making a list, and I, I do this stuff for fun sometimes, I know, I'm sure you do it too because y'all love the Bible. Uh, if you were making a list and you were shooting for a top five or top ten most important moments in Scripture, what do you think or what would you put on that list? Or what do you think would go on that list? Or what do you think would qualify for that list? If we were kind of coming up with a short list of things, what would you put on that short list? Maybe five top uh, moments in scripture. I, I know that you could say that every moment's important. And of course, every moment is. Uh, you don't have Genesis 10 without Genesis 9. You don't have uh, Matthew 10 without Matthew 9. I, I know every moment's important in terms of giving way to the next, but there are clearly some that stand above the rest in significance and in impact. So if, if we were making the definitive list, uh, of course, don't think we have that sort of kind of authority to make that list, but if we had the freedom to say, hey, someone task Risen Church, um, I want you to give me the top five most important moments in Scripture, most significant moments in Scripture, historical events, not just passages, um, favorite verses or favorite passages, but most important moments in Scripture. If we were given the task to make the definitive list, um, what would make your list? Now, I'm sure um, you would, you, some of you might would come up with pretty obvious suggestions. Uh, maybe you would come up with something that nobody else would come up with. Um, does anybody want to share with me? I know we all have, I think, one moment that we would put on the list, but I'll show you my top four in a minute. Um, does anybody want to share? What would you put? What, what, what's the story that you would put on that list? Of course, maybe the obvious one is Jesus. So let's just take him off the, 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 off the, the docket there because we kind of know he's going to make it, right? What would you put on your list? Yes, go ahead. Well, yeah, that works in with Jesus, so, yeah. Yes, and now, of course, Jesus talks about how it was previewed in the Old Testament, too, so we'll get to that. Thank you, Caroline. Anybody else got anything you want to? Want to share? What would be on your list? We got all night. <laughs> Joseph, the story of Joseph in the Genesis, Joseph. Hey, that's one that, that should be up there. Should be at least top ten, I think. Diane, where Jesus prays about eternal life, yeah, or prays to the Father and teaches us. Um, yeah, I think that's encapsulated in the story of Jesus, like Caroline, John three, Mama. Yeah, um, so. I think Jesus, obviously, we would put him uh, and, and not just individual passages of Scripture. If he wanted to rank verses of Scripture, then, man, that'd really be fun. I don't think we could. I think we could do a top, 100, top 100 and not run out. Um, but in terms of historical events or think moments in time that change history, you know, uh, Geneva mentioned Joseph. Of course, Joseph's the reason why the Jews went from the promised land to Egypt. And, of course, that set up the story of Moses and the delivery from Egypt. So that's got to be in the top 10 or so. Um, but... If you gave me, if you said, hey, Justin, I want you to give me your top, we'll get to five, but let's go four first. 
I would say the top four moments in scripture, this is just my opinion, your opinion is just as valid. I think you gotta put up, put up there uh, where Noah finds grace. Now, of course, why, why do we begin with Noah? I think that's important because of course, God made Adam and Eve, you know, that was his plan. You know, he made them, they failed. Um, not that that is an important moment, but in terms of what happened after that, humanity became so sinful. God said it repented him that he made creation, but what happened to stop God from destroying the whole world? Noah found grace. Noah found grace. Noah looked to God and he saw in God's heart, not just judgment, he saw grace. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That yes, God, we should be punished. We should be judged, yet God gives grace. So that's really the beginning of the gospel message. Noah found grace. And I think you can't go too much down the, down the, uh, the, the timeline without stopping Abraham, because of course, Abraham is the father of faith. He's the father of the nation of Israel. Um, he's the one who came, uh, you know, who set the nation of Israel in motion, led to Joseph, led down to, to Moses and Joshua. So I think not just Abraham becoming the father of Israel, but Abraham believing because what happened when Abraham believed in God? God credited him as righteous. So Abraham believed, he trusted God, the first of, uh, that we know of in scripture. He put faith in God's plan and God said, Abraham, you're righteous because of it. So Noah found grace, that's gotta be up there. Abraham believes, that's gotta be up there. And then of course, Moses, not just that he received the law, but Moses' story has gotta be part of that, right? He was the liver, the, the, the stepson of Pharaoh, brought in uh, to, to deliver the children of Israel. But Moses on the mountain getting the law, this is God showing Moses how high his standard is, which would of course reveal that we needed a savior. So now I know I skip over a lot of important events from Moses down to Jesus. You got Joshua, you got David. David gets the promise. David establishes the kingdom. He gets the promise of Messiah. The prophets, I could go on and on and on. But I think that if we're gonna narrow it down to five, which nobody made us narrow it down to five but me, so this is kind of arbitrary restrictions. If we're gonna narrow it down to five, um, I gotta have Noah, Moses, Noah, Abraham, and Moses on the list, and I gotta have Jesus on the list. Of course, his death and resurrection—that's kind of a given, isn't it? Uh, because that's that's what they were looking towards. That's what made it all make sense. Jesus's death and resurrection—that is one of the top five. That is the biggest moment in history, let alone Bible right? You all agree with me on that. Maybe the world wouldn't, but I think the world should agree with me on that. Now, this is where we might differ on the, the fifth one, but I believe, and I think that number five has to be Saul's conversion and commission. Saul's conversion and his commission. Saul, of course, we know him as Paul, but in this point in the story, he is Saul of Tarsus. Now, I know that's a big, you know, putting him on that in that air with you know Noah and Abraham and Moses and Jesus I mean hey does Saul deserve that kind of 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 you know rarefied air I think he does uh now I know Pentecost is a big deal but it's sort of just a general byproduct of of the resurrection and I think Saul's conversion and commission gets a gets a slight edge over Pentecost even uh because of course what did Saul's conversion and commission lead to it led to us there would be no Gentile church if not for Saul because nobody else was picking up the, the, the wagon and, 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 and you know, spearheading this movement as far as this point in Acts. The disciples didn't want to leave Jerusalem. Stephen tried to, to, start a, to start a big movement and of course this guy killed him. But of course what happened in the aftermath of that? Saul is converted and he's commissioned to be the preacher to the Gentiles that takes the church out of Judea, out of even uh, uh, the Middle East, to Greece and then to Rome, of course, to the other side of the world. Saul is what started that. Now, regardless of other potential candidates, 
It's beyond question that Saul's conversion is up there at least as a top 10 moment in scripture. And again, Saul's up there with history. If you, if you ask historians, uh, because you know, one thing that people try to discredit the scripture, um, secular scholars, academics that don't regard the Bible as inspired, they admit that Saul of Tarsus changed the world because there's no denying that Saul of Tarsus, a historical figure in 30 short years, spread Christianity from a single city in Israel to the whole world. That even people that don't regard Christianity as supernatural, who don't believe Jesus is God, they tell you Saul of Tarsus is a game changer because he took the message of Jesus to the world. Whether people should have believed it or not, they'll say Saul changed everything. Now, as far as Acts is concerned, again, next to Pentecost, this is the most important moment in Acts found in chapter 9. Saul of Tarsus' conversion and commission. Now, if not for Saul's conversion and commission, that what began at Pentecost would have been much smaller and far less impactful. As a few weeks ago, we went into few, uh, full detail about Saul's miraculous conversion. How, about, how after uh, uh, he was on the way to kill Christians, he became a Christian. Uh, and we talked about how his conversion is a testimony of our nature apart from God and of the saving power of God. How in sin we are depraved without a desire for God, but because of God's intervention, we're drawn out of sin and we're put into Christ. Saul's story, that moment when the light of heaven shines into his darkness, the gospel broke his chains of sin. He was stuck in sin. He was hell bent because of sin, but Jesus changed his life. The gospel can do that to anybody. Now, maybe a perfect picture of spirituality um, happens when, uh, 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 spiritually, what happens when somebody is saved is the story of Lazarus. We talked about how salvation literally requires God drawing us out of our sin. It's God breaking, into our, uh, breaking us out of our sin, light shining into darkness. That I think the story of Lazarus depicts a literal resurrection, but I think is a greater picture of somebody coming to life in Christ. Listen to the language in the story where Lazarus is raised. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So Lazarus would not have came out if not for Jesus saying, come out. By name, he calls him, come out, Lazarus. And John wants us to make, be a very uh, clear about this. The man who had died, who was buried, came out of the grave. That does not happen apart from God making it happen. It's the same thing about, our, about us and our sin. We don't come out of sin unless God says come out of sin. We don't get up, you don't clean yourself up, you don't moralize yourself out of it. It is an act of God to bring us from death to life. The story goes on. His hands and his feet were bound. His face was wrapped. And what did it take to get him unwrapped and unbound? Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. What is that a picture of? You and I are made alive in Christ. We come from death to life. You know, I, I know I've said this before. We often talk about Christianity as just improving our lives. But I think it's better said that Jesus doesn't make us better he doesn't make life better. He makes life possible. You say, well, I'm, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't, a lot, that aren't Christians that are still alive. That's just how much we've settled for that subpar life that is to be out of Christ and to be in sin. Of course, he makes our lives better, but it's important to understand that apart from Jesus, there is no true life, eternal, abundant whatsoever. The Apostle Paul, 
Of course, Saul, who would be called Paul later, writes about his own conversion like this in Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So what does Paul liken his own conversion to? A dead man coming back to life. Isn't that a powerful imagery? And that's more than just, hey, I'm going to do better. Or I'm, from now on, I'm not going to. No, this is an intervention from God that apart from such, there is no hope. Paul maybe better summarized it for us in Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You know what that means? That means grace as in we could not have gotten it on our own. God, his kindness made it possible. His kindness broke through the barriers and brought us to life. So you get the point, don't you? Saul exemplified this almost instantly in his conversion. We sort of breeze past the details of his encounter with Ananias, so I want to spend a little time appreciating the details of what happens beyond just what the famous Damascus story where he's on the road and gets knocked off his horse. Uh, Paul was left blind, you'll remember, by that moment on that Damascus road, whether by his own request or by God's command, his company led him into the city. And that's where we want to pick up the story in Acts 9, verse number 9. It says he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he was blind for three days and he fasted for that duration. Now, why was he blind? Was this some kind of punishment? I don't think so. Notice he also fasted. So Saul was instantly motivated to empty himself of all of his past and to tune himself, as we talked this morning, with the Lord. And I think his blindness, I think, is meant to signify his transformation that he's undergoing. That I think was instantaneous, but we're, we see it kind of spread across some, some days here. I, I think it becomes more significant because we know Saul because of who he becomes. And we see what this is kind of previewing. This period of three days, I don't think that's a coincidence to you. I mean, anytime you see three days in the Bible, I think you're instantly brought back to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the time between. So I don't think Paul's blindness for three days is some sort of coincidence. I don't think it can be. Saul was buried in his old nature. He was buried in his old life. And he is about to wake up a brand new person. Now, again, it was instantaneous. It didn't require a three-day gap. But I think the story tells us a three-day version to dramatize it. I think this is meant for us to say, wow, this is, this is, this is big. This is Jesus-like, you know, dead, coming back to life. Saul is going to come out on the other side of this a different man. And of course, if you know the story of Acts, that different man would go on to write half the New Testament. So I think we, we're, we're meant to think of this as, a norm, as more than just the average salvation because Saul is more than your just average believer. He was about to break, wake up. Now, it didn't require a three-day gap. I think that's just to denote this moment in history as a major event. Saul himself would go on to write this. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So again, three days blind, Paul literally was united in a death like his, and he was united in a resurrection like his, something that we also can experience ourselves from salvation forward. So clearly he's embodying this dramatic sense to suggest that a major change was happening or had happened. The picture here is Saul is completely remade and rebuilt for the glory of God. 
The old man was crucified and buried. And, and I, I know some of you, this might be a little nerdy and a little bit, you know, younger generation talk. But if you've ever, if you've ever watched a superhero movie, uh, especially the origin story, there's that moment in the story where the superhero become, where the average man becomes the superhero, right? Where something happens and you go, oh, wow, he could have died. Next thing you know, it, he is changing the world. That's literally what is going on here in, in Acts 9. That Saul is just the average, not just the average man, he's an evil man. I mean, he's killing people, killing Christians, he's an enemy. And he comes out the other side of this, resurrected like Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. The old man was crucified and was buried. Again, now we know the inspiration behind some of the monumental verses of Scripture. Think about the Scriptures we've just referenced. Ephesians 2, Romans 6. These are big, monumental passages of Scripture that detail going from death to life. Maybe the most famous about that transformation is 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now you understand what, what Paul was talking about, the point he was coming from. Because what had happened to Paul? The old was gone and man, something brand new had come. But let's not too, get, get too far ahead. We covered the part where Ananias is informed that God is sending Saul his way. And of course, I love that Ananias felt like he needed to tell God the, uh, about Saul because clearly I guess God hadn't heard about this guy. Uh, look at verse number 13. Ananias says, Lord, I have, heard of my, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, as if God didn't know. Ananias says, you know, he's, he's trying to hurt your people, God. And I think Ananias is thinking, I am one of your people and you're going to let a murderer come to me? I mean, you know what he wants to do to me. So I think Ananias is, is basically saying this. I have heard the evil that he has done and the authority that the evil one has given him. And God, I don't, I don't want any business with that man. I mean, would you want any business with someone who was doing evil and had authority from the evil one to do more evil? Of course not. But Ananias had just set up this moment for God to say, well, let me tell you what I've done to this man who's been doing evil, this man who has been given authority from the evil one. You know what he did, don't you? God had forgiven him of the evil and freed him from the evil one. God says, Ananias, I know this man. Believe me, I know him better than you know him. I've been there with every Christian he's killed. I've been there in that precious moment where my own child was murdered by someone wicked. But I just saved that someone wicked. In every wicked deed he did, I forgave him. And the evil one that possessed him and that gave him the authority to do that evil stuff, I have freed him from that bondage. So Ananias, thank you for the education. I don't know what I would have done without you, but I hope you'll take this little bit of education in return. God forgave him of the evil and God freed him from the evil one. God tells Ananias in verse 15 that he's not just forgiven and not just freed, but he says, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. So listen, buddy, he's not just forgiven. He's not just freed, but I have put my favor on him. You know what favor does? Favor changes us. Forgiveness and freedom, that just says, hey, you're no longer bound by sin. You're no longer going to hell. But God says there's more to the story. 
Because you're not just let out of Egypt, you're going to the promised land. You're not just forgiven, you're resurrecting. So if you think salvation is just this stuff, you're missing the third, maybe more significant part of it that these two things get you qualified for. That God says, I've given him favor as in I've transformed him by my grace for a new direction. Saul typifies what God wants to do with your life. What do you want? God, Saul typifies what God wants to do with every converted believer. That we aren't just given a sticker that says you're saved. We're given a new identity. Yes, we're saved, but that's supposed to do something to us. Now, we talked a little bit ago about Saul's transformation. The word transformation is the Greek word metamorphosis. You've heard that word before. Metamorphosis means a substantial change, a change in substance. And the dictionary would add through a supernatural means. Isn't that good? So what had happened to Saul? He had been transformed, forgiven and freed of the old, but with favor he was made something in somebody new. The word behind repentance carries the same idea, changing the way you think. And when we change the way we think, God changes the way we live. He changes who we are. Saul was not only converted, he was commissioned by God. I mean, just again, I, I, can't, I can't stress this enough. Just think about, think about this sentence. This sentence is just impossible to imagine that could ever have been part of God's plan. Saul, a former weapon against the church, would be God's chosen instrument for the church. I mean, can you make that up? I mean, would that have ever been part of your plan if you were God? Of course not. Saul, a former weapon against the church, verse 15, is a chosen vessel, chosen instrument for the church. That's incredible. We can all be instruments for God's glory if we yield ourselves to him. Verse 16 stands out, though, that we can't just skip past, even if it does sort of divert. Notice he says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Now, what word do your eyes focus on in verse 16? Suffer. That's what, the, the, that's what we do. We see suffering. We think, whoa, I don't, you know, what, what? I thought you just changed this man's life for the better. I mean, why has he got to suffer? I mean, and we think about, well, what does that mean? We got to suffer too. So we, our eyes glare at the word suffer. We think, well, I don't like that. But if you've been paying attention to our Bible studies in Acts, what word should we flag as super important? Must. Must. Remember back in Acts 5? We must. So must is that divine day. It's that Greek, little Greek word, D-E-I. Divine necessity. So I want you to see what God is doing here. Saul thought it was necessary to stop the church and bring suffering on the church. But God tells Saul it is necessary that he suffer in order to build the church. See how it works? He, Saul was, was bringing suffering to destroy it. But God says, Saul, I'm turning it on its head. Yes, you're going to suffer, but for the good and the glory of the church. I think the message here is that suffering for God's glory would be better than prospering at the expense of God, which is what Saul was doing before. But another thing, 
it was also making it clear to Saul that in his transformation, because what was Saul before this? He was an enemy. He was on the group of, he was part of the council that was hunting Christians, that was, that was wanting to kill Christians. So Saul has changed sides in this situation, hasn't he? So what's going to happen to Saul as he goes from enemy of the church to part of the church? Well, there's still some enemies out there. And don't you think they're going to be real riled up when their head guy joins the movement they're trying to kill? So in going from death to life, in switching sides, he would no doubt face the opposition that he himself once spread. And God wants him to know that there's nothing to be afraid of. As soon as Saul walked out of that grave, he had a hundred weapons pointed at him because the devil just lost his number one agent. And he wasn't happy about it. And honestly, the devil's not happy when he loses any of us. And he has opposition coming our way every single day because he's hell-bent to try to stop us and ruin what God is doing. Why is God telling Saul this? Because in just a few verses, he's going to face opposition from the very people that he was once leading. The people that were once his biggest fans were now his greatest rivals. But again, it would be worth it because Saul was now on the side where results were not what he brought to the table, but what God had provided. As far as Saul is concerned, when he was saved, he could never lose again. Same thing's true about you. When you're saved, we can no longer be bullied, intimidated, or threatened by defeat. But we still let things threaten and defeat and intimidate us, don't we? But this is true. I mean, I, I hope you write this down. I hope you read this to yourself. I have to read this to myself because I feel defeated so many times and I forget this. When we're saved, we can no longer be bullied, intimidated, or threatened by defeat. Our victory is forever settled in Jesus. I hope you'll say amen to that because that's, that's good. Verse 17 through 19, story goes, Ananias went his way, entered the house, laid his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to me or appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. When he had received food, he was strengthened and he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. The people that he was going to kill, he spent time with them in church. So, here we see Saul begin to live in this victory. He's filled with the Spirit. He has clear vision. He's baptized into the church. And he's strengthened. He's ready to take on the world. And when I say ready, I mean right then and right there. Look at verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ. That he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Those that heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the one who destroyed those who called on the name in Jerusalem? And now he's come here for that purpose so he might bring them bound to the chief priests? I mean, is not this the one that helped kill Stephen and came here to kill us? But now he's joining us? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Jerusalem, proving that Jesus is the Christ. So again, underline that word, highlight that word immediately. So was this something he had to go to, you know, get prepared for or, 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 you know, take a little while before he became a Christian? No, it was instant. And here's the thing, Christians, your new life does not begin somewhere down the road whenever you get settled down. Your new life begins right now. 
forgiven, freed, and favored for the glory of God. Immediately, he increased proving that Jesus was the Christ. But, but like God predicted, opposition was just around the corner as in verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. The disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. So now you understand why God told him in verse 16, hey, this is not gonna be an easy road, but don't worry, you're on the winning team. Because just a few verses later, 23 and 24, they're trying to kill him. No worries. The tension wasn't just with his former allies, but his former adversaries remained adversarial, verse 26. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. I mean, I bet they didn't. Last time they saw this man, he was stoning their friend. Now, in their defense, it wasn't like he had been just a regular sinner that they were judging. I mean, they were afraid of this guy because he was a murderer. But even still, kind of sad, isn't it? The ones that preached that God could change anybody's life did not believe that God could change this man's life. And aren't we the same? I don't want to get off too much, but man, I could preach a whole sermon there. Aren't we just like them? You see, we need to honor the grace of God and not judge those that God has declared saved. And I'll go farther, not judge those that God can save. And maybe he never has saved them because we haven't given them a chance to see and hear and know the God that we claim to know. Of all the people, the church ought to extend a hand. Now, it could have ended badly. I mean, Saul was a stone-cold killer. Could he be trusted? In this instance, Barnabas stands up, verse 27. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and he spoke to him. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas says, you know what? I'll put my life on the line. I'll put my arm around this guy when nobody else is willing to. I'll talk to him. I'll hear him out. I'll pray with him. I'll listen to his story. And then I'll stand in front of the whole church and say, listen, if you don't take this guy, you don't take me. Barnabas, his name means the son of encouragement. And man, isn't this an encouraging thing to see in the church? Sadly, even in those days, there was just one of them. This wasn't an act of trusting Saul, but trusting God. Verse 28 through 30, he was with him at Jerusalem coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus, disrupted against the Hellenists as they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So he goes back home to join the synagogue there to do work for the gospel there. But this isn't the last we'll hear of him. Saul continued to face opposition. He returned home and would remain there for some time. And verse 31, we'll end here. Then the churches throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So here we get kind of a recap verse because where have they been preaching the gospel throughout the first nine chapters of Acts? Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And we get this kind of recap verse that now that Saul is saved and he's been accepted into the church, there's peace. And everyone was strengthened because of this movement of God. And they all were a little bit sitting up a little straighter in reverence of what God and God alone can do. And they were multiplied. That's the big word. That's the big word. Saul's conversion had an impact on the whole church. It sent waves through the whole body. There was peace. There was power. They had a right posture and they began to make progress. The gospel had always promised peace with God and on earth because of God's promises and they had it. 
They had power. God encourages and fans the flame for more to believe that he could do that great work in them as he did Saul. You see, they have the right posture, giving place to God's leadership and sovereignty. They were aware of the sanctity of this moment and time they were a part of. And we see they made progress. The church was growing because the gospel was going. When the church, when the gospel goes, the church grows. We often hear the line, if God can save them, he can save anybody. Maybe that's what sparked this revival. If God could save Saul, I mean, what, what can he do? But we also know that we've talked, as we've talked tonight, that God saving any of us is equally remarkable. Saul's conversion and transformation reminds us of the work that God can do in us and should encourage the work that we're doing in our time. At this point in history, again, to summarize, at this point in history, the church had its back against the wall. The church was on the run. The enemy was breathing down its neck. And what was God's response? He converted the enemy. Kind of a plot twist, isn't it? The momentum swung back in the church's favor. A second wind blew their way. Just like that, God made the difference. He can do the same in our time. Imagine, I mean, I want to make this very clear. Verse 31 is a, such a big summary verse because the biggest opposition the church had ever faced was now an advocate. And we think that there's things in our culture today that are just impossibly difficult to deal with. And look what God did with Saul. And what did he do with Saul? He saved him. We pray for God to get rid of people we don't like. Right? God saved Saul. And nobody was praying for him, by the way, except for Stephen. He, he prayed for him in his death, which that maybe made the difference. We must rely on God like they relied on God. We must control what we can control. And, and I'll say these last two things. We must be like Saul, that as soon as he got the new life, he walked in the fullness of it. Again, immediately, instantly, he dove in with both feet. We also must be like Ananias and Barnabas, who were obedient and open-minded to God's ideas, even when they didn't initially think it was a good idea. Because where would Saul be without these two men? He'd been outside looking in. How many Sauls are sitting outside the church waiting for somebody like Ananias and Barnabas to come and welcome them? Welcome them. We'll never know. Because, of its, because God's ideas make the difference his, under his care, we can find peace and power in the right posture. We can find the, kind, the progress that they found. And church, I got to say, God's not done. The church isn't done. And what God did in Acts 9, he can do again in our time. No matter the opposition, we are in the winning position. Acts 9 is the beginning of a second wave for the church. As they were scattered, they never panicked. Under immense pressure, God made his power known. Isn't that an incredible story? What a, more than a story, it's history. It's our history. And it's our hope. And I hope that we can be encouraged by this word tonight. And go into our world with a different perspective. A winning perspective. In a time when a lot of people are giving up. We know better, don't we? Church, I love you. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for hearing God's word. I believe we'll be better if we hear it and apply it and believe that God can do the same stuff that he did then in our lives and in our world. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for letting us witness this incredible story, this incredible event of history. 
Thank you for the work that you did in Saul, how that shook up the world because no one expected it. God, thank you for men like Ananias and Barnabas that didn't just believe in you, but they welcomed one of yours, even then when the rest of the world didn't want to welcome him in. Father, thank you for the witness of your word. And I pray that we as Christians would hear this and we would adopt the same model that they prioritize, that we would, uh, we would welcome your power and your work. We wouldn't get in the way of it, but we would work and be the hands and feet to see more of it. God, thank you for the peace that you brought them, that you might would bring the same peace to us, that we might would see even our enemies become our advocates and become members of our church. God, we love you and we thank you and we ask all of this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.